1: listeners. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes podcast. Before we dive in today's episode, we have a special announcement. The final episode of this season will be dedicated to answering questions from our listeners. So if you have questions about the topics we have covered or about us, please send your questions to beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. As always, we recognize that the topics covered in this episode may be challenging for some of you. Please do what you need to to take care of yourselves. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Beyond Fear listeners. This episode is a little bit different from our others and our guests need no introduction because we're not guests to you. Today, Alyssa and I are going to be interviewing each other. What we really wanted to do was catch you all up on the work we're doing outside of Beyond Fear. Right, Liz?
0: Yeah. I mean, we've been doing this work now on Beyond Fear for two seasons, but it's only a small portion of what you and I accomplish in the world every day. And so we really wanted all of you to get a glimpse into that work and that time uh, and how some of that really influences what we talk about here on the podcast.
1: So, Liz, can you fill us in about what ampersands restorative justice is and sort of the inspiration behind it?
0: Yeah, so if you uh, have been listening to our episodes since the beginning, you know that in episode one, Lex and I talked about uh, participating in and facilitating restorative justice. So to give you a little bit of background, um, when I first came out as a survivor in 2014, uh, when I came out publicly as a survivor, I shared that experience with a friend of mine who's a treatment provider uh, for people who have sexually harmed. And not long after that, she asked me if I'd come speak to the people in her treatment group, but she wanted me to come as Alyssa, the survivor, not Dr. Ackerman, the sex crimes expert. So I went and it was a fundamentally life-altering experience. And after that, we put on our academic hats and talked about like, what is it that we did? Why was this so life-changing for people? Uh, And it turned out that what we were doing was restorative justice. So I continued going back to her treatment programs. I started working in other treatment programs coming in as a a survivor participant. And eventually when I started talking about it publicly and on social media, people started coming to me, asking me to facilitate processes for them. And eventually I realized I needed a, a container for all of those cases. So that was the inspiration for ampersand's restorative justice, and I had the the idea for it uh, back in twenty eighteen after giving a talk um in central California, and I was driving home and I'm like, "This is the organization." so I branded it, I bought the URL for it, and then just kind of sat on it because I knew eventually it would be something um, and it was actually during the pandemic when I decided to launch this thing, and the the meaning behind ampersands is that we can hold multiple things um, we can hold the good and the the bad we can hold um, survivors and people who author harm in the same conversation and that ampersand uh the inspiration for the name actually came from Dr. Danielle Harris, who was on our a podcast during the first season. She's an Australian researcher who studies desistance from sexual offending. Uh, and she was the inspiration for that name. Uh, and so we, we began um, the process of building the business in 2020, and we launched in uh, 2021. And so now it's been just over a year that the organization is out there in the world. We've trained 22 facilitators. We continue to facilitate cases. We work with different organizations to consult with them. And it's just really
1: been a dream come true. It's been amazing to watch you build that dream and really inspirational um, as well, because it took a lot of hard work. um, And being a part of that has been amazing. Uh, and, And I think it's just like it can be so life-altering for folks that go through that process. Um, and I, I guess I want to dive a little deeper into the sorts of cases that you facilitate. Um, so what's an average or typical case for you? Who comes to you? Is it the survivor? Is it the person that's authored harm? Um, and, and, you know, what are some of the common details in some of your cases?
0: Yeah. So I don't know that there's a such thing as a typical case because every restorative justice case and process is different. And that's because every person who comes to us is different. But what I can say is that typically it is the person who experienced harm Mm -hmm. who comes first asking for a process. And the majority of the cases that I see are uh, acquaintance rapes, date rapes, cases where there's a just a fundamental misunderstanding of what consent is. Mm-hmm. But there are also cases where it's the person who perpetrated the harm who comes and asks for a process. And typically when, when that happens, we do not do a reach out to the survivor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We use a vicarious process with a proxy survivor. But you know, there are cases where institutions come to us when they have caused secondary harm. Yeah. There are cases where families come to us because somebody in the family has committed harm. So it really runs the gamut and ampersands covers any form of sexual harm, contact, non-contact, workplace boundary violation, you name it, we will take the case if it is appropriate for restorative justice. So the short answer is, or I guess it's the long answer, there is no typical <laughs> case. Um, but typically, uh, if I were to say what I see the most of. It's the cases where there's a fundamental lack of understanding of consent.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned two really important things and in terms of your answer around there being no typical case. And I, I think that's part of the beauty of restorative justice is that it's very uniquely suited to addressing each unique case, right? Which is very different from you know, our criminal legal process, where it is sort of an assembly line process where every case is dealt with, you know, in a very, quote unquote, consistent or similar manner. So I know you you talked a little bit about, you know, not many cases not being similar, but have there been any cases that were particularly challenging or aspects of cases that have been a challenge, maybe for you personally or on an organizational level?
0: Yeah. Um, so I would say there's two separate kinds of challenges. One comes when the participants with whom I am working um, are not prepared to take full accountability or they don't recognize what real authentic accountability looks like. Um, so sometimes it's very frustrating trying to, and challenging to get people to a place where they can really name what they've done. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels and not getting anywhere. And then there, so that's one kind of challenge. The other kind of challenge is when it is personally challenging, as in um, there are similarities in the uh, experience of the survivor that are similar to my experiences of sexual harm. And so sometimes, because I'm so open about being a survivor, I will have um, survivors say to me, well, you know, you know how to answer that question because you're a survivor. You could just answer it for me. Mm. And I have to remind them that the process is for them, not for me. And this is about their language and their words and their experience. But also sometimes cases can be triggering. And it's why I continue to see a trauma therapist as part of this work. Um, because I have to have a place to put some of the more challenging and triggering stories.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Those
0: kinds of cases are few and far between. I've done enough of my own healing work, right? You can't take anybody further than you've taken yourself. Yeah, uh, It's why therapists have therapists. But so I make sure that that is part of my practice uh, is to have my own therapist to work through any challenges. Um, mm-hmm. So there are personal challenges, but there are also professional ones where people just are not, Ready for the process,
1: uh, that sort of leads into a question about some of the other work or focus or um, spheres if you will that ampersands takes on, which is training folks to um, facilitate these cases and and part of that i'm I know is. Uh, sort of teaching people how to handle those types of challenges of uh, vicarious trauma and, and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about what the training looks like, um, what topics you cover, um, things like that?
0: Yeah. So the, um, So the original training program that we designed was a 16-week, 40-hour training across mm-hmm. six different modules. Uh, we are now revamping that training um, to make it more streamlined. But essentially we cover, you know, an introduction to restorative processes. Like what's the difference between restorative justice and criminal justice? Um, You know, what are the different kinds of processes that we can use? What is the historical, um, what are the historical roots of restorative justice? Um, So we give a really, um, meaty understanding of what restorative justice is and what restorative justice for sexual harm is. We talk about the the evidence for restorative justice and how and why we know that it is effective. We then have an entire section on the impacts of sexual harm. So we talk about um, how we know how much sexual harm exists in the world, who does it happen to, when does it happen, why does it happen, uh, and then you know how does it impact people in the short term and the long term? We talk about the neurobiology of trauma and the way that sexual trauma impacts the brain and the body. We talk about why the criminal legal system isn't really effective for survivors and how current policies that we use don't really have survivor interests and needs in mind. Uh, we talk about why people sexually harm in the first place and you know, because if you, if you want to be able to stop sexual harm, you have to understand why it happens. Right. Uh, we talk about all of the current legislation that is on the books and why that is ineffective. And then we turn to how do you do restorative justice for sexual harm? So we talk about trauma informed practice, right? You have to understand trauma to be able to do this kind of restorative justice. Right? Absolutely. Um. And then we talk about all of the skills necessary. And then we mm-hmm. dive into all of those skills and we do a lot of role playing and practicing of those skills. Uh, we practice being in circle. We practice one-on-one facilitation. And then we have an entire module on the model that we have built. So step-by-step step from referral and intake all the way through to debrief uh, and provide documentation like how do you ask questions in an intake? What does the intake look like? So um, the first part of the course, the first bundles of the course are much more academic. Mm -hmm. And then the latter
1: part of the course is much more hands-on experiential. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More role-play, practical-based, like like you were saying. Which I, I think, at least for me, is some of the more challenging things when you, maybe because of my academic background, I'm really familiar with you know, the ideology of sexual harm and the legislation and that stuff is sort of like second nature at this point. But, you know, when you you can talk about facilitating, but doing it is a whole other animal, if you will. Totally. It's been um interesting for me doing some of that RJ work at Folsom Prison and working with the guys there, preparing them to uh, face the person that they harmed or the surviving people. It's it's really challenging and it's really um, intimidating. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about restorative justice. And I think one of the most significant ones is that it's somehow soft on crime or easy on people that are perpetrating harm. So can you talk a little bit about that and then maybe some of the other really common misconceptions about restorative justice uh, for sexual harm specifically as well?
0: Great question. I mean, I think the most common misconception is that restorative justice is soft. Yeah. That Um, you know, you're just going to sit in a circle and hug it out and then you're going to be best friends again. And then that's the end of it. Uh, And all somebody has to do is say, I'm sorry. That's not what restorative justice is. Restorative justice is so much harder uh, than sitting in a prison cell because imagine the worst harm you've ever committed. And we've all, we've all committed harm, but the worst Mm. harm you've ever committed having to look the person in the eye and say, I did this, and I'm sorry, and this is what I've learned about it, and these are the steps I'm taking to ensure that I never do it again, and then continuing to live in that active accountability. That's really hard.
1: And and let's be honest, too. That's hard to do on a lower level. Like That's hard for me to do with my husband sometimes. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Right.
1: Owning hurting someone's feelings or working through things with friends and having to say, like, I messed up. I apologize. I own it. I accept, you know, responsibility. And I make, you know, I honor us moving forward. It, it's tough. And so when we're talking about something like committing a crime against someone, it I it's very, very hard.
0: Very right. hard. You know, I have worked with over 500 people who have sexually harmed. Yeah. And the vast majority of them have told me that they would rather sit in a prison cell than face me because naming this stuff is really hard, like digging really deep to understand how you you could do something like this.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It's not easy. So I think that's the most common misconception that somehow we're just letting people off easy and that, you know, if we just lock them up, that's more effective. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that it's not prison doesn't work. uh, It doesn't reduce crime. It doesn't stop recidivism. And people who go through a restorative justice process have lower rates of reoffending than people who go through a traditional criminal legal one. So, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the common misconception. Uh, And then the other thing when it comes to sexual harm is people say that we should never use it in cases like this. And I think it's just because of a fundamental lack of understanding about why people sexually harm in the first place Mm -hmm. and that people who commit acts of sexual harm are somehow different than other people who cause harm. And that's just not true. And in fact, the research shows that restorative justice for violent offenses is more effective than restorative justice for low-level ones. Mm -hmm. So that's really what it comes down to. This is not soft. This is not easy. And it is actually quite effective.
1: Yeah. And I think so much has to do, it's really interesting to me because you have on the one hand, the way society treats survivors who do come forward and they're met with a lot of shame and blame and disbelief and on the other hand you have this very punitive attitude towards people that perpetrate harm and to me those things are just it's just it's they're so far apart but yet they both exist you know in this in this weird mix of attitudes towards sex crimes and how we deal with them. And I, I feel like restorative justice can sort of bridge that gap. Um, and, and learning about why sex crimes occur. And like you were saying, that people who perpetrate sexual harm aren't different from people who perpetrate other types of harm. And, and that, I think, is a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Um, but I think, I hope, we're seeing a shift. And I think you've seen a shift in just the the volume of folks reaching out to ampersands. Um, And like you were saying, that doesn't just include individuals, that has included organizations um, as well. Um, So have you, do you think that the views and attitudes towards using restorative justice for sexual harm has changed Um, over time, like maybe over the time that you've been doing this work?
0: (laughs) Um, Yes and no. So when I first started speaking publicly about my restorative justice work in 2016, 2017, um, I had people get up and walk out of talks that I was giving. I was called every name in the book from, you know, rape apologist to sex offender lover to pedophile lover Um, and you know, when people first started saying those things, my, you know, my gut reaction was like, if you knew anything about me, you would know that that's not true. Uh, and over time I've kind of come to this place where it really doesn't matter to me what Mm -hmm. people think, uh, because I know that this work changes lives because I see it, I see it happening. I also see a shift in that people are seeking out our services when it used to be a case at a time. Now we have people coming all the time and it's like, you know, we can't take on other facilitation cases because of the cases that we do have. Right. Um, The public speaking circuit that I am on has, you know, increased significantly. You know, it used to be a presentation at a conference a year or, one talk a year. And now, you know, I'm doing multiple keynotes a year in multiple countries, right. It has like picked up exponentially in the last three years.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and just continues to grow with larger organizations, uh, larger institutions, um, uh, you know, prosecutors offices asking for help. And it doesn't mean that all of them jump on the bandwagon, but they're talking about it. They're thinking about it. They're interested in it. Um, And that's really beautiful to watch when you, you know, when you know that you're standing on the precipice of something and watching it take off, Um, you know, it's just, it's amazing. And six years ago, I didn't know, I mean, I knew it would take off. But I don't think six years ago I realized that six years from then it would
1: be where it is. Yeah. It seems like it has just sort of rocket shipped off in the <laughs> you know, recently that maybe is because of me too. That, you know, there's like a variety of reasons and you know, I've had the privilege of being in some meetings. Um with ampersands and some criminal justice organizations and just hearing folks acknowledge criminal justice professionals, acknowledge that the system is failing survivors um, and, and failing in a lot of ways to protect and serve the communities that they're meant to be representing is incredibly validating because I, you know, and I've talked about this, on this podcast a lot, and we did a whole episode around how I how I experienced the criminal legal process and how that was not healing, how that was actually traumatizing. So to hear that there is a future where survivors have other options is really inspiring and incredible. And this work you're doing is not easy, and I'm sure it is frustrating many days, but, you know, the progress being made is really, really incredible to watch. Thank you. So that sort of leads into where you see ampersands going in the future. Where do you see it five years from now, 10 years from now, you know, 20 years from now, what, what's your, uh, next dream for ampersands? Yeah.
0: So I think, you know, what I would like to see is, you know, so the, um, the vision for percentage restorative justice is a world restored from sexual harm. And so what that means to me is that there are enough people trained to facilitate, there are enough organizations, either community organizations or criminal legal institutions um, that offer restorative processes to anybody who wants one. Yeah. Um, that there is an awareness everywhere that this is available and that it, um, helps to shift the system away from current practices. So I'm actually giving a talk this coming week, um, in San Diego on restorative justice and transformative justice. And so while restorative justice is about the individuals, transformative justice is about changing the system. And so while the work that we do at ampersands is working with individuals and institutions on um, specific experiences, my overall perspective comes from a transformative lens and that I want to see a change to the system. We have issues yeah. with systemic racism and mass incarceration and, you know, specific groups of people being harmed by the system in ways that other groups aren't. And the people who are most likely to be harmed by the system are also the people who are most likely to be victimized. Right. I want to see that change, right? I want to see processes that are grassroots that start at the community level that are culturally specific, built for communities, right? I believe that- that. Justice is local.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that's what I want ampersands to help to build. That people come to us for technical assistance um, to help them build something in their community, not a system saying, this is what we're going to do. Right. And that comes with awareness. Um, so, you know, in five years, 10 years, 20 years, I hope that we have an entire team of facilitators on staff uh, to facilitate cases and that we are providing restorative processes to anyone, anywhere who wants a process, um, that it's open to anybody, not just people who are privileged and can afford it. Right. That we can offer processes free of charge so that anybody can access it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's a huge hurdle, is just the knowledge of what's available, right? That this is something that can happen and this is something that that we're facing with the folks in Folsom prison is that people just don't know that that this is available. Survivors aren't made aware and systemically there's a lot of disconnect between you know, what the prison system is doing and the programs they're offering, what survivors are being told is available, um, and, and just all sorts of challenges around communicating that this process is there if you're interested. And and that's sort of another, I think, challenge as well when we talk about sexual harm and restorative justice, is that You know, no one's ever forced into this. No one's ever going to say to a survivor, you must do X, Y, Z restorative practices and, you know, sit face to face and forgive the person that's actually harmed you. This is something that is survivor centered and initiated. So this is an option, right? So I feel like that's um, another important aspect of this. And that's a question I probably get from students the most or I'll say to them, you know, what's what do you think what's your biggest concern about using restorative justice to address sexual harm? And nine times out of ten the answer is, well, you can't force survivors to to do this because it would cause more trauma and would cause more harm to them. And I always have to remind them that, you know, that this is an option. It's not um no one's gonna be forced to do this unless they're ready to do so. So, you know, I just, but I think that that we should give survivors and really anyone more than just going through the criminal legal process. People deserve to have other routes of of healing.
0: Uh, so Lex, it was really nice to be able to talk about ampersands and kind of what I've been up to in the world over the past year. Uh, But you've also been really busy with a really, really amazing project. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the Survivors Memorial and maybe give some background on the project, how you got involved and what it's all about?
1: Yeah. So um, the Survivors Memorial is the first ever memorial built to honor survivors of sexual harm. And It is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it was unveiled during the pandemic. So it was a virtual sort of opening, and I believe it was in October of 2020. So uh, myself and my colleague, Dr. Nicole Fox, who also has been uh, featured on an episode of Beyond Fear in season one, um, and she talked about wartime rape um, and rape during times of genocide. Uh, She and I actually heard about the memorial and uh, we I'm not really even sure how we came across an article randomly about it. It, But I just remember her actually being in my office when we found it. And we thought, oh, my gosh, this is sort of right up our alley because it crosses, crosses both of our areas of expertise where, you know, she does a lot of research on memorializing um, times of war and survivors of genocide. And obviously my focus is on um, sexual harm and how that impacts individuals and communities. So we thought we have to find a way to bring awareness to this um, beautiful memorial and get involved as soon as possible. So we actually reached out to Sarah Super, who um, was sort of the driver behind getting this memorial started. She is a survivor, and she really wanted to do something to bring awareness to survivors in a way that is permanent, that was accessible, that was in a community um, and really sends a message that, you know, we see you, we hear you, we believe you, and that we stand with you. And so her idea for a Memorial really came from somebody that we both, Alyssa and I, or Sarah as well, and Nikki as well, are big fans of <laughs> Dr. Judith Herman. um, And her work on trauma and recovery from trauma And basically in her book, Trauma and Recovery, she talks about how we have all of these memorials to um, we have a lot of war memorials and memorials to people who have fought and died in in wars. But, you know, we have so many people that are impacted by sexual violence and we don't have any efforts to memorialize them or to say we see what happened to you, and it was horrible, and we want to support you as a community um, and honor you. And so that's sort of how uh, the memorial idea began. Uh, and through Sarah's hard work, really, it was built. Um, and so the the first steps of our research process, because it had not finished um being built yet was that we spoke to all the folks really that were involved in getting this off the ground and it was really fascinating to talk to them about that process and you know what that looked like for them
0: so can you um talk a little bit about like give our listeners uh, an image of what the monument looks like
1: mhm so it's it's really mind-blowing and incredible. And Alyssa, I hope you get to see it in person one day. It's very moving. Um, when it's in a beautiful park, first of all, by um the water in, in this really green, beautiful, lush space in Minneapolis. It's called Boom Island Park. And essentially there are three large pillars. Um, and each side of each of the pillars is covered in mosaic. And these mosaics sort of represent images of what healing can look like or the impact of sexual harm looks like. And as you sort of walk past each one, you know, these these images are incredibly moving. So, for example, my favorite one is a very sort of dark colored background, almost black, and it's the first pillar. And at the bottom of it, there is in red uh, the outline of a person sort of in a ball, like um, with their head down. And from there, from that image of somebody really in the depths of the trauma of sexual harm, you see, you know, this shift on the other side of the pillar and on the following pillar, you see other people surrounding an individual, supporting an individual. Um, And the images are also of the people in um, the mosaics are of diverse backgrounds. And it's really sort of incredible to see that sort of representation and flow From that one beginning image of a person alone to um, a person surrounded by others in an image of support and solidarity. So it's really, it's very incredibly moving to walk through that mosaic um, part. And then there is also sort of a healing uh, spiral. So if you exit the area where there are these pillars, you sort of step into this circle and on the floor or ground of the circle, there are spiral sort of images um, in placed into the ground. And this is sort of to represent that spiral of healing, that healing is nonlinear, that healing has its ups and downs and you know, stops and starts, which is something that we've talked about, you know, here um, on the podcast quite a bit. And it really does a beautiful job of of communicating that message. Um, just like the mosaic communicates that, you know, something can be broken, but made whole into something new and different. And so we've both talked about how, you know, when you experience sexual harm, the person you were dies essentially. Um, But through healing and trauma recovery, you can come out the other side as something different, um, but made whole again.
0: Absolutely. I love all of the symbolism in this piece. And I do hope that one day I get to go see it in person. That's
1: very incredible. So,
0: so you started talking a little bit about doing the research on the memorial. Can you talk about why you decided to do this and, um, yeah, just why you decided to do this research?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we decided to do it, like I said, it was a sort of intersection of both of our areas of interest, but we also, um, obviously... Uh, Are both survivor criminologists. Um, So we thought that this would be important to document this process because we're also interested in looking at the impact of collective trauma and looking at the intersection of social justice movements, of reconciliation movements, and of healing after experiencing harm. And so this memorial um, and the process of building it offered us the opportunity to see how a community could come together to address something that most communities don't address in this public communal way, which I think is really the big takeaway here is that this was obviously the first of its kind, but really impressive that a community would take this on, really get out there and raise funds for this gorgeous Memorial pull together folks from landscape designers to mosaic artists, to, um, you know, folks who worked in the parks board department to tons of donors that really were passionate about making this a reality. And we really wanted to see what this process was like for them, why they wanted to do it, why they felt it was important. Um, And maybe also like what would be a blueprint for other communities interested in creating a memorial space like this Um, and really how the memorial would would function in the community as a site of healing, of awareness, of um, reconciliation, of even education efforts? Um, How is it going to operate in this? community that it's uh, that it's in and how can we get the message out there that this could be something beneficial for other communities so this was sort of step one in our research process was sort of documenting um, what it was like to participate in getting this memorial off the ground and um, then looking at the visitors to the memorial and understanding why people visit it and what their, their takeaways or experiences tell us about um, how people perceive sexual harm and how they perceive the memorial site as potentially a site of, like I was saying, healing, of reconciliation, of awareness, um, and so much more.
0: So can you talk a little bit about what you've learned from the research?
1: Right. So through step one, so research part one, which was speaking to the people involved in um, constructing the memorial, uh, we learned, you know, there were sort of several themes in terms of the responses. So we had like one to two hour interviews with about 21 people that were involved in different aspects of building the memorial or raising funds for it. So we learned, number one, that um, people were or found it very important to um, bring that the memorial would bring awareness to how pervasive sexual violence is. And a lot of folks had that awareness at the start of the project, but it became much clearer as they continued to participate in getting the memorial off the ground. So a lot of people were very inspired by Sarah's story. And, you know, once they sort of signed on for the project, they learned so much more about sexual harm. They had other people in their lives coming forward and disclosing their survivorship. And it really drove home for a lot of people how needed the memorial is and how impactful and significant sexual harm is on not only individuals, but for them, they also realize on their community as a whole and how people need a healing space. And I think something we've talked about on this show a lot is that, first of all, people don't report for the most part when they experience sexual harm. A lot of times when people do report the criminal justice process, you know, it either doesn't move forward for whatever reason um, to trial, and then when it does get to trial, oftentimes um, the result is not something that helps survivors to have that "quote unquote" closure or healing. And so, this memorial um, really represented to the people we talked to the the healing that. Survivors don't get, and the support that they don't get from the criminal legal process, or even their community as a whole, and the recognition and voice that they also don't get. Um, so this became a way to say we recognize those faults, and we want to give survivors something more than what they're currently getting. So that was one of the the big takeaways.
0: Um I know we've talked about this but one of the other takeaways was about why now.
1: Yeah. Um so when we started this um project we had a feeling that the Me Too movement was going to be a significant um answer to that question. That because of Me Too, you know, this that would be one of the reasons why this project moved forward. So although we had that notion it it emerged as something important um but not necessarily central. So what came about was that, yes, Me Too had more people sort of talking about this topic, but really the why now was the commitment of the people involved in getting this off the ground and in continuing to push through. So this was across many years trying to get this memorial built. And, you know, the Me Too movement, of course, had... More folks talking about sexual harm. Um, But there are also other, um, I would say, important social movements occurring as well. That people were really reckoning with violence in communities and the failure of our institutions to protect and serve people. And this became another way of addressing sexual harm in communities outside of those traditional systems so really a grassroots movement to uh, mobilize people around an issue that we often don't talk about that we often ignore or silence and you know this was a way to again provide that support and honor the voices of survivors
0: can you maybe talk a little bit about how or what you learned about the future of sexual violence memorialization?
1: Yeah, so in speaking to the people that were, you know, involved in the, getting the memorial built, um we learned one of the specific questions we asked was What advice would you give to other people in other cities about memorial, creating a similar memorial or a memorial to survivors? And we learned that, you know, the advice was to do it, (laughs) to to make this happen because it's important. Um, The folks involved believe that this can be a site of not only healing for survivors, but also a a site of education and prevention. So the types of events, for example, that could be held there, things like um, Take Back the Night, for example, or, you know, if I taught at a university in Minneapolis, I would certainly bring people in my sex crimes class there to, you know, talk about the imagery and... Um, representations of of the impact of sexual harm. And I, I believe and the folks involved believe that that could be very powerful in terms of education and prevention, which we know is something that is sorely lacking, right? Like we do very little in terms of preventing sexual harm. We do, most of what we do is reactionary. And you know then the nature of this site could be a site of prevention so not only recognition but also getting edu- you know bringing awareness and education to the impact of sexual harm can really prevent it from happening in the first place and it's a space where those dialogues can take place
0: it's such a like just hearing about it having not even seen the site but having read some of the stuff you've written about it and, and talked to you about it. It just, even having not seen it it has such a profound impact on me as a survivor to think that a place like this exists in the world.
1: So no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's just really incredible. And, um, you know, we, because of that, Uh, And because we started this research during the pandemic, we really wanted to take a step two. And step two was to learn about the folks that are visiting the memorial and what their experience of it is, to even bring more awareness about how a site like this could be a positive thing for other communities in other cities. And you know so we kind of went out there and hustled and got grand money to do um this step two research which um we're still doing so we're still in the process of where uh we go to the site and we ask people who are at the memorial site if they're willing to answer a survey uh answer some survey questions and um another aspect of this is we ask folks if you know, they'd be willing to do a follow-up interview with us to um, help us understand in a little bit more detail their experience of the memorial. And, you know, this is done to understand how people from sort of different social locations and demographics experience um, sexual violence either individually or um, people close to them. And what their understanding of healing is, and whether or not they believe um, the memorial uh, really represents their understanding of sexual harm, and how they see this functioning in the community. So it's been a really incredible process to be a part of, and we've learned a lot so far, and you know, we've got. A little bit more time left and grant money left to keep it going, so um, I'll have more to report at a later date. Um, but I think something that was sort of heartbreaking and unexpected um, happened that I'd like to share. And this happened on our first trip to Minneapolis to start collecting survey data, um, and this was in May of this year um Nicole and I arrive at the memorial site and as we're approaching we notice that um some of the bricks so there's a brick pathway where people could donate money and have their name on um, a brick put on the pathway to the memorial, or a message to survivors. So some of them said really beautiful things like, you know, we honor you, we stand with you, you know, etc. So we noticed that some of these bricks were sort of thrown around um, and and dug out of place. And then we noticed that uh, pieces of the mosaic had been chipped away. So it became pretty clear that somebody had very violently thrown some of the bricks at the mosaic, um, damaging a lot of pieces of it. And it was really hard to see. It was heartbreaking. And, um, you know, we immediately first called the parks board um, and they called the uh, subsequently called the police. But we were actually the first people on the scene, so to speak, which was sort of another ironic twist of the story, um, this Sarah Super and her family, of course, have been very involved in this project and take great pride in it. And her parents had been there the night before or the day before um, actually pulling some weeds um, around where some of the, the trees had been planted. And so we knew that between the early evening hours and when we arrived in the morning, that's when this damage had occurred and it was really difficult to have to share that information with sarah and her family but also lori green who was the mosaic artist and it was just really heartbreaking to see and you know in our initial research with the folks that were involved in the planning and in the building of the the memorial We had asked if they had any concerns about it being damaged, and there were concerns about it. Um, However, none of us thought that it would be such a, so much damage. This was, it felt very angry and very directed at the message, for lack of a better you know explanation this wasn't somebody that just i don't want to say just but that spray spray painted or tagged their name some you know on one of the benches in the reflection area this was somebody who dug up bricks that were cemented together and chucked them hard enough to do damage on several of the mosaic pieces so it was just A reminder of how much further we have to go. If people think that honoring survivors is somehow a negative thing or something to take their rage out on. I mean, that was almost astonishing to me, which I I feel like it shouldn't be. But it still was, you know, like it just still, it, it's such it was it was just really tough because this is such a positive thing and something that's become very close to my heart and to see it harmed in that way felt very painful. And I think it was painful for everyone. Um, but the community has come together and the parks board has come together to, to work on you know, fixing that damage and, you know, sort of finding ways to better, quote unquote, protect the memorial. But, you know, it's a double edged sword. Part of it is that the beauty of it is that it's in an open communal space that anyone can access whenever they need to access it. And that is beautiful, because it's there for everyone. But that openness makes it you know sort of vulnerable to harm it's an ampersand it's it's both right it's it's beautiful and and dangerous in a way so um i'll be going back there in a few weeks actually wow it's coming up quick what happened to the summer um <laughs> i'll be going there in a couple weeks to do that final trip of of survey data collection i'm really interested in seeing, you know, um, the repairs and, you know, speaking to folks who um, are visiting and and finishing up these interviews and and seeing what what we learn.
0: Absolutely. So what would you like to see happen relative to the memorial?
1: A couple of things. I would love to see the memorial get more media attention locally. Um, It is, I think, part of the lack of media attention around it is that it was unveiled during the pandemic. There was so much going on with our country politically at that time with the election and, um, you know, a lot of unrest and obviously a global pandemic that i think the memorial kind of got lost in the media mix in a lot of ways uh what we found is that um through our survey data that most people didn't know about the memorial and are not coming there to intentionally visit it they actually are stumbling upon it through a walk in the park or they're canoeing down the uh river and they see this beautiful you know art piece, essentially, and come and explore it, which is really actually quite incredible because you're getting people who otherwise wouldn't be engaging with um, the with sexual harm and survivorship. Um, but it also speaks to the notion that, you know, it, people don't know about it. And I think it's something that people should know about and should consider Um building in other communities and letting that be a community-led movement. It shouldn't look like this memorial. It should be representative of the community that it's being built in. So I would also love to see the memorial get that national attention and see that, wow, it's important to honor survivors in this public way It's important to do so. Why haven't we done this when we have these, you know, beautiful and incredible memorials? If you go to Washington, D.C. and you see these war memorials, they're gorgeous and they're incredibly moving. And you can spend a whole day going to all of these. Why is it just now that we have one for the first time in 2020? To survivors of sexual harm, when there are millions of folks that have experienced it. So, I hope that the message gets out there to other individuals who are wondering how can I mobilize my community to address and acknowledge and offer the opportunity for healing and storytelling um, to survivors in my community. And, and this can be a way to do so. So that is is my other hope. And to see it, um, to see these sites in other cities and to see what um, events are held there and, and how they function in the community as not only sites of healing, like I said before, but also of education and prevention. I think that that there's an amazing opportunity there for that. It's a conversation starter. For folks that are just even stumbling across the memorial in Minneapolis in the park, it sparks conversation and thought in them um, around something that maybe they have never thought about before. And that is very powerful. And the memorial does that in a way that I don't think many other things do.
0: So as we close out our episode... I guess I have one last question. What does the memorial mean to you?
1: Mm. So I think I I really, that answer became very clear when I saw the damage done to the memorial. Um, It means everything to me as a survivor. I do feel like someone sees us and I feel believed and I feel, I'm going to start crying. Jeez. I feel believed and supported and honored. And I feel proud to be a survivor when I see that memorial. I do. And I feel really proud to be doing this work to get the message out there, like I said, and to expose people to really what is a beautiful, um, art piece and site and place of healing for so many. And I, you know, we'll share the link um, so folks can see the images of it that I sort of described in the beginning. But it is, it is everything uh, to see a community rally around survivors and want to do something that others have not addressed before. It's just incredible. And I encourage anybody that's in Minneapolis or can travel there to go check it out. And we'll share links, like I said. So,
0: You know, Lex, it reminds me of what it means to be a Survivor Scholar.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Right? To be able to own the personal in such a professional way. And on the professional in such a personal way. And it reminds me that one of the other things that we have done. Yes. (laughs) um, We we did it five years ago, but it's just now happening. Right. Um, There's a book coming out called Survivor Criminology, A Radical Act of Hope. Mm -hmm. And we have a co-authored chapter in there.
1: Yes, we do. About
0: what it means to be a survivor scholar. Yeah, yeah. Because this work is everything.
1: It is. It is. And, you know, honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, that chapter really started our relationship as co-authors and colleagues and co-writers and friends and really also kind of started the podcast as well because we yeah. wanted to get our message of, you know, what our experiences are and what we have learned, um, on a professional level out to people. And, you know, the, the book chapter is there and we have this podcast and, you know, we continue to do that. And I think it's an honor to be a survivor scholar and, you know, we will link to the, to the book as well. And to amplify. Yeah, it's going pub- well. to be
0: published. Uh, it, it's in publication right now. Yes. So it's coming out.
1: I'm so excited to get my copy. I can't wait. And you we, did the cover art, which I is did the cover art, amazing yeah. too. <laughs> Thank you. So exciting. Yeah, we started
0: writing that before we moved to California. Oh my gosh! Yes. Don't I, I mean? I remember sitting in cafes yes. in Tacoma,
1: yes. working on it. That's crazy. It's been that long. We have done a lot, my friend. I've done a lot. It- <laughs> In the past six years, we have done quite a bit, and I am proud of us. so it's really beautiful to see where we
0: are now.
1: Yeah. And where we are from one when, when we experienced our rapes to where we are now, I think is pretty incredible for both of us. so
0: oh, absolutely. Not anyway, without you, my friend.
1: That's right. I'm sending a virtual hug right now. Yes. (laughs) Well, this was a great episode. I'm glad we had the opportunity to catch up everyone else on what we're doing and even just to chat with each other on our work. It's been nice to do that. And, of course, we'll share links with all of you on Ampersand's Restorative Justice, on the memorial. Um, I can link to – we should link to our – cuny article Mm -hmm. um we wrote an article for a law journal about using restorative processes to address sexual harm and also to the survivor scholar book and you know the work on the memorial that dr fox and i have done so
0: absolutely we have lots to share
1: lots to share Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the sex crimes podcast, a part of Article 3 podcasting network. Beyond Fear, the sex crimes podcast is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or any questions you have about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter, at Fear Instagram, at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.